0: It's a little bit inside of it. My, the pages of my Bible are still a little bit crispy and wrinkly and crackly from some outside service we had a little bit ago where the rain and thunder came down. 1 John 1, 5 through 10. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. What has been your experience with Christians? As you've lived your years until now, I'm sure you've met a few, look around. What has been your experience with Christians? Have you found them a delightful people who bring joy and richness to your life, with whom you feel a close, maybe even supernatural kinship? Have you found Christians to be a strange people who talk a lot about morality and faith but never seem to live up to their own words? Have the people who claim Christ been a burden or a blessing to you? How you answer that question will probably go a long way towards how likely you are to receive the message of Christianity, to receive Christ himself, the content of Christianity. If your experience with Christians has been overall good and positive and joyful and you've seen uh, the wonderful people that they are, it'll make it easier for you to accept the teaching of Christianity. On the other hand, if your experience with Christians has been troubling, discouraging, despairing, you found them to be inconsistent, even rude, judgmental. If that has been your experience with Christians, you will be less inclined to receive the gospel we proclaim. And as an aside, that's why it's important for you parents who are raising kids in your own home to ensure that your Christianity is not just a Sunday morning expression. If you want to set up your child to reject the faith, then bring them to church on Sunday and joyfully sing and then go home and complain about everything you experienced and have nothing to do with the things of the Lord throughout the week and then bring them again on Sunday. That is a wonderful recipe for raising people who reject the faith and reject you as inconsistent. Many, if we're honest, have had bad experiences with grumpy, self-righteous Christians. And that may be one of the biggest obstacles, the biggest objections to people coming to faith or accepting Christianity today. They've had bad encounters and left them asking, are Christians judgmental hypocrites? Is this who these people are? And that's the question I want to unpack this morning. Are Christians judgmental hypocrites? Are these people who say one thing, talk about morality, talk about... Faith, but then they live their lives totally differently. Maybe as a Christian you've received that accusation, that you Christians are all just a bunch of self-righteous, judgmental hypocrites. You talk about sin, but you corrupt yourselves. Why should I be like you? So that's our big question this morning. Are Christians judgmental hypocrites? Now, this sermon could be really short. Ask the question, are Christians judgmental hypocrites? We could say, yes, and Jesus forgives, and let's go have lunch. And that is essentially the message this morning. So if you want to tune out the rest of the time, just take that. But I think we could do more unpacking. You pay me for a reason, and I've got to be here for at least a little bit. And a better question to ask might be, is Christianity itself hypocritical? And I think that's a better question. Is the teaching of Christ, is Christianity as it's intended to be, is that hypocritical or does it produce hypocrites? Not just are are Christians corrupt and sinful? We'll get there. The answer is yeah. But a better question is, is Christianity as it's intended to be and as it's taught in scriptures, is it hypocritical? I think that's the best way to analyze it as it's intended to be. Uh, For example, how many of you have ever taken somebody to their first professional sports game? Maybe you're evangelizing for a sport, and you're saying, you're going to love baseball, let me take you to a Royals game. Now, as you're driving there, what is your hope? I hope it's a good game. I don't want to take them to a snoozer. You want to um, have them evaluate the sport as it's intended to be on its best basis, Uh, similarly with food. So I'll pick on Midwesterners for just a moment here. I've never heard so many people say I don't like fish. But that makes sense. We're a little bit landlocked. The the Midwest is probably not the best place to experience uh, the depths of the ocean, right? So if you're going to evaluate whether or not you like fish, I would say maybe spend some time in Maine. And then... We can talk about it. We want to have the best representation of it if we're going to assess it honestly. Evaluate as it's intended to be. And this is true, I think, in all realms and, frankly, for all faiths. If we're going to examine the merits or demerits of Islam, I think any Muslim person would not want you to assess it on its worst expression. They would say, look at the teaching itself. We would want to look at the teaching of Islam and its leader and then make our evaluation. I would want you to do the same with Christianity. Examine the teaching of Christianity. Examine its founder and its leader. And then decide for yourself, is this good? To do that, we're going to go to a part of Scripture that I think speaks to this question. It's 1 John 1, 5 through 5-10. That if somebody were to say, well, aren't Christians just a bunch of hypocrites? This would probably be the first place I'd take them. Let's look at 1 John 1, 5 through 10 and see what it says about Christians, about sin and confession and righteousness. Here, John, the apostle, is speaking to false teachers who have made some false claims about Christianity, so he wants to set them straight. And he does so first with a summary statement, verse 5, I just want to look at that first a summary statement about the, the message we proclaim. And the message we proclaim is this, that God is light. This is the foundational central truth uh, of Christianity, that God himself is good. That he is light. And if you want to understand Christianity, you need to know this. Let's start here with who God is and his character. The message we proclaim, God is light. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Again, John communicates a core foundational truth of the Christian faith. It has to do with the character of God. Who is he? He is light. There is no darkness in him whatsoever at all. He is light. And we know later in first John four, John's gonna say, God is love, and we love that verse. What a wonderful thing. What a wonderful truth. God is love. God is also light. Just as much as he is love, God is light. I mean, God is holy and pure. There is nothing corrupt, nothing untoward, nothing sinful, nothing unrighteous about him at all. He is light, and not only that, he brings truth and clarity, and whenever he goes, wherever he speaks, that sheds light. So it gets rid of all hypocrisy, all um, duality. God is light and brings clarity in his holiness. The central truth to our faith, who God is. And notice, we start there. When we're describing Christianity, what is it? We don't start with us. We start with who God is. The center of our faith is the character of God, not the character of Christians. That is where my hope is as a Christian. My eternal hope is in the character of God, not in the character of me. Individual Christians can disappoint and discourage. But that's not where our central hope lies. Our central hope lies in God and who he is. Our central hope is in the goodness of Jesus Christ, who says, I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Just as God is light, Jesus is light. Therefore we proclaim him. So we don't follow ultimately even Paul or John as the leaders of our faith, though God spoke through them and gave us his words. They are not the central figures of our faith. Jesus Christ is. We don't follow a denomination as central to our faith, though we may be blessed by being part of an association of churches. Our faith is not ultimately defined by a group of churches. Our faith is not defined by a pastor or somebody who writes books or speaks at conferences, and we don't set up shop as their follower and say, I'm just going to follow them, whatever they do, that is my person. Our faith is centered on who God is, because all those other things will ultimately disappoint and fail. When we talk about what makes our church our church, we start with, who is Jesus? Jesus is at the center of our church. So when we talk about the merits or demerits of Christianity, we start with Christ himself. And if you're not a Christian, I would invite you, as you're examining Christianity, don't start with the people. Start with the person. Jesus Christ. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Now, that said, that does not mean that we are under no obligation to live like him. And John's going to speak to that. While the faith doesn't rest on us, and we are not the objects of faith, we do have a responsibility to live like Christ. So John's going to speak to that. There were some who taught in John's day that if we believed in Jesus and if we were united to God supernaturally through Jesus Christ, then it actually really didn't matter what we did. That was the false teaching that was going around in John's time. That's what he was speaking against. There were some who said, well, it really actually doesn't matter how you live or what you do with your body. You can do whatever you want because ultimately you are made holy in God. You're united to him. You're a spiritual people. So what you do with your body is don't worry about that. And John's going to speak against that now. He's going to say, actually, that's not true. It really does matter, truly, how we live. So he's going to speak to that. And he's actually going to contend with three false claims that I'll go through here in the rest of these verses. The first false claim is in verse 6 verses 6 through 7, deal with the first false claim. And the false claim is that darkness can have fellowship with God. Here's the false claim that John's going to contend with. Darkness can have fellowship with God. Again, there are some who believe we could live any way we wanted. didn't matter what we did. We could be in continual sin, and it doesn't matter because we can have fellowship with God. We can still be united to Him. We can be hypocrites. We can live in evil, But it doesn't matter because we're united to God. And John's going to say, no. That's a false claim. Look at verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So this first false claim is about the one who claims to have fellowship with God, but walks in darkness. John's saying that's not true. If you walk in darkness, you can't have fellowship with God. We cannot claim to belong to God if our lives don't reflect a godly character. A couple important things here. First, notice that John's talking about walking in darkness. So he's talking about a patterned, habitual life of darkness. He's not talking about a a step of darkness, uh, dipping your toe in the darkness, moments of sin and darkness. He's talking about walking in darkness. So he is speaking to those people who continue to live lives of sin and ongoing sinfulness and darkness. And he's saying that cannot have fellowship with God. It's a lie to say you can live like that and claim to be one of God's people. Which brings up Another important clarification. It is possible to claim to belong to God or to belong to Jesus Christ and not actually belong to him. Notice what John says. If we claim to have fellowship with him but walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The obvious implication, there are those who will claim to belong to Christ, but do not. Jesus himself teaches this. There are going to be some who go to him at the end of the day and say, Lord, Lord, I knew you, I did all these things in your name, and Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. So this is an important distinction. There are some who say, yeah, 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 I'm a Christian. They would put that when they fill out the census, and as they report and study and say, yes, I belong to Christ. I believe nothing that Christ said, and all my theology and doctrine is way off, and my life is just totally contrary to what Jesus Christ says, but I claim to follow him. John is saying that actually is not true. That's a lie. But there will be some who claim to be Christian who are not. And not all who claim to be Christians actually are. So again, this is an important point as some would look at those who claim to be Christian and say, I don't want anything to do with that. You might be on the side of Jesus. He might not want anything to do with that either. All throughout history, there are some who claim to be doing things in the name of Jesus that are not in his name at all and have nothing to do with him. Not all who claim to be part of the church actually are and actually represent Christ. However, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we are a part of the people of God. You would expect it to say that we have fellowship with God, but that's not what John says. He says we have fellowship with one another. It goes further. If we walk in the light, if we live as God intends, as Jesus calls us to live, then we can know that we not only have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with one another, that we're truly a a part of his church and a part of his people. If we look and act like Jesus, we can know we belong to him. Now here's the shocking truth. Christians do this and have done this. This is a word for the cynical. Oh, you Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites who only do evil. No. Those who walk in the light belong to him, and those who belong to him actually walk in the light. So I will go to my deathbed defending the goodness and righteousness of Christians as they live out their lives in Christ. Yes, yes. Christians have sinned famously and notoriously. But it is also true that Christians and the church have been an unequivocal blessing upon the world since their inception and ever since Christ has risen, the church has bettered the world around it. And I unabashedly make that claim. Next time you go to the hospital... Thank the Lord that Christians are responsible for hospitals, for institutions of higher education. All our Ivy League schools started by Christians. May not have remained Christian, but they started there. Uh, Josh Howerton, and he's a pastor, and he writes in the Gospel Coalition, he wrote an article about truths about Christianity and what they, and Christians, what they actually do. So I'm going to read some things, some data from him, about the truth of Christian witness and um, impact on the world around us. So, you know, it's the, the people accuse Christians of not actually being pro-life. And we're pro-birth, but we don't care about people or moms or kids about the, after that. But the truth is that, along with being the force behind basically every pregnancy resource center, The adoption rate among practicing Christians nearly doubles that of the average U.S. household. Christians care about kids more than everybody else, and the data says it. Data shows that church attendance is associated with less depression, less suicide, more volunteering, more civic engagement, less emotional pain medicators like smoking or substance abuse, and children in Christian homes are more likely to grow up happy. 65% of those who are practicing Christians regularly give money, time, or goods to the poor, while only 41% of other Americans do. 45% of practicing Christians regularly volunteer with charitable organizations, while 27% of other Americans do. Studies show that church attendance produces the most enjoyable and least abusive relationships for women compared to other Americans. Christian marriages are 35% less likely to end in divorce. The more a person attends church, the less likely they are to commit a major crime. Recent LifeWay research found that Christian young adults donate more than three times as much as non-Christian young adults each year. And study after study will show that Christians give more money to charity than non-Christians. Christians live better. And I say that without any hesitation. The numbers bear it out. Why? When we're called to walk in the light. And by God's grace, we do it. In fact, it's expected of us. And if that's true in our lives, then the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. John is not saying that we earn salvation by our works or our goodness. He's saying that if we walk in the light, we can know that Jesus has cleansed us. From all sin. Now, what's John saying there? We need to be cleansed from sin. That's the obvious implication. If we're rejoicing the fact that Jesus' blood cleanses us from all sin, we're admitting we're sinners, and that's what John gets to in his next false claim. Verses eight through nine. Here's the second false claim that was made by some false teachers. In John's time, we have no sin in us. That's what some are saying. And John's saying that's not true. For Christians, we know this. We know we have sin in us. But some are saying we have no sin in us. And that is simply a false claim that John's going to refute. So John is going to say, yes, we must walk in the light, but also we have sin in us. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So John says if we say we have no sin, we are lying to ourselves. We don't have the truth in us. And there is some debate as to what exactly the false teaching was that John is speaking to here. But basically the idea... That some were teaching was that if you're a Christian, if you're united to Christ, then you have no guilt in you whatsoever and you have done nothing that is condemnable. And that we are not guilty of anything. We have no rebellion in us at all. No guilt before God. And because they had no sin, these false teachers did not think they needed Jesus as an atoning Savior on the cross. We don't really need the atonement on the cross because we have no sin and no guilt before God. And I think we actually have this kind of teaching all around us today. We have no real guilt in us, not any guilt before God. I think if we walked around and just random person-on-the-street-style interview, and just asked anybody, and we said, do you believe you're perfect? How many would say, yeah, I think so? You, kids, little ones, do you think you're perfect? No. Even as a child, we understand that. We all know. And I think any non-Christian, anybody of any faith, will say, no, 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 we're not perfect. I would never claim to, do, to be perfect. But then, if you were to ask anybody are you a sinner and guilty before God? The response will be different. Because everybody knows we're not perfect. But how many will say, I am guilty before a holy God and my guilt deserves condemnation? The world we live in will try to minimize our guilt, minimize our sins, and say, "Ah, that's actually no big deal. I think that's the great deception of today. That is the great lie of today. John here says we're deceiving ourselves if we believe in this. This is the great lie and deception of today. All the things that Scripture would say are evil, the world says, nah, it's not really evil. In fact, some of it's good. And you're pretty judgmental for saying it's evil. This is the great deception of our day and every day that what scripture calls evil, we would call good. We're not guilty of that. And whatever that is, that doesn't make us guilty before God. Listen to the words of Isaiah 5, through 21 A warning from the book of Isaiah. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. It's a warning to all who would say, What scripture calls evil actually I think is good and I'm right. Proverbs thirty twenty, this is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. And I think that's the attitude of a prevailing culture. And it's a self deception that can work its way into the church and Christians say, I'm not really guilty. So we believe this, that we are all guilty. And this is the part that gets us called judgmental. That all of us, no matter who we are, have done things that make us guilty before a holy God, condemnable before a holy God. That is what we believe. And for some, that's really judgmental. And they say, well, that's yeah, just what Scripture teaches. But I'm not pointing you out, We don't believe that's only true of some people and not of others. We believe this is true of everybody, that all people are guilty. So don't feel isolated if we call you a sinner. say that to everybody in this room. This is what scripture teaches. We are all guilty. The question is, what do we do next with it? And there's the good news of Christianity, that forgiveness is available if we confess. Jesus was always upset, maybe most upset, with the people who were self-righteous. Why? Not because they were sinners, but because they wouldn't admit it. Wanting to prove to others how good they were, they could never just confess their need of a Savior. And if your heart is like mine, you can go down this road pretty easily. I'd much rather prove to you how good I am than just simply confess I'm guilty. Kids in the room, how many of you young ones are at home with your parents? How many of you kids have done something wrong and you knew you did something wrong, but you didn't want to tell your parents? Have you ever experienced this? If you were a kid... Have you ever experience this? If you're a spouse. <laughs> Why did you not want to tell your parents that you did something wrong? Why was it hard to confess? Because you were afraid of what they might do. If I do this, I don't know how my parents are going to respond because it's really bad. So we... Get afraid to confess. Here's the good news about our Father in Heaven. We always know how we will re- He will respond if we confess. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess, hey, I did this wrong and I'm guilty, God the Father will always forgive now, there may be consequences for our actions, and that's for our training and discipline and holiness, and ultimately, it's for our good. But God will always forgive, will always separate sin as far as east is from the west. He will always accept you and love you if you confess your sins. And if you're Christians as parents, you will model that for your children as well. There may be consequences that are needed for training but I will always forgive, always love. That's the truth of the gospel. We are guilty, but God will always forgive. So if we hit our brother, we can confess that. We'll be forgiven, and we may have to go do some work in restoring the relationship with our brother. And that's not always pleasant, but we know we'll be forgiven in Jesus' It leads to the third false claim. Similar to the second one, this last verse in verse 10, has our third false claim, and this false claim is that we have done no sin. Some of the false teachers thought that once they become Christians, they would get to a point where they would no longer sin. So it's not just talking about guilt before God, but actually reaching the state of I no longer do anything wrong, I no longer sin, I no longer make mistakes because I'm so holy in Jesus Christ. We no longer commit any sins in this life. And John's going to say, that's a false claim. That's not reality. That's not true. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So John will say, not only are we sinful and that we are guilty before God, but we're going to continue to sin and make mistakes. We're We're never going to reach that point in this life where we no longer sin. So we as Christians can freely admit I've done things that make me guilty before God and I continue to stumble and fall from time to time. In my walk in the light sometimes I trip over the sidewalk. Though we are washed clean and totally forgiven and made pure in our union with Christ we are totally holy we still have this sinful part of us that clings to us, that we have to contend with. I think I've told this story before because I love it, Um, but there's a a famous, apocryphal, legendary story about Charles Spurgeon. I don't know how many of these details are true or if it happened at all, but there's a story about Charles Spurgeon who was at a pastor's conference once, and one of the people who was at these pastor's conference, another minister, was claiming to have reached the state of perfection, that he had reached a place where his speech was pure and he never said anything wrong and he had, by God's grace, reached that point where he just no longer sinned. And as the story goes, Spurgeon took a pitcher of milk or water, I don't know which one, and proceeded to pour it on that person's head. And after they responded in hatred and angry and filthy words, Spurgeon said, See, the old man in the new is still alive and it only took a little bit of liquid to draw him out. The point is, none of us can claim to be perfect. We are all in need of grace. Not just once, but ongoing for the rest of our lives. All of us have a great deal of imperfection that still needs to be rooted out from us. This is why, back to the original question, how come Christians can seem to be, or are they such judgmental hypocrites? Part of my answer would be, well, why would you not expect the church to be full of sinners? Of course the church is going to be full of sinners. That's why the church exists. If there were a perfect group of people that never sinned, we'd never need a church. But asking why is the church so full of sinners is like asking why is a hospital so full of sick people? That's why it's there. That's part of why we gather. It's because we know we need grace. We know we need encouragement. We know we need help from other people. We know we need grace before God because we continually stumble and fall in sin and make mess of things. And yet, by God's grace, together we walk in the light with one another and are encouraged by the church. So the church will always be full of sinners. In fact, I think the church will always be full of the worst kinds of people because those are the people that know they need grace. The people have got it all figured out and they're living pretty good lives, morally upright. I don't know, they may not need or see their need for a Savior. But those who are really messed up, like me and you, who've been confronted with how wicked we really are, we're the people who fall on the grace of God and say, Help! So we should always expect, in some way or another, to find the worst kind of people in church. Because in some ways, they're the most predisposed to go to the cross. And plead forgiveness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. John says if we were to say that we are not sinful, we actually wouldn't be a good witness, we'd be calling God a liar. So the church full of people says we're perfect, and we've got it all figured out, that is actually not a witness to Jesus Christ. But the church that says we confess our sins, we know we need grace, that is a true witness to God. Accurately representing Christianity and the truth. We as Christians should be people who readily admit our sinfulness. And I'd say to you, if you were to go out and try and find a whole bunch of Christians who are hypocritical in their actions and base all your views on Christianity on those people, it won't take you long, it won't take you. It won't be hard to find those types of people who prove your point. If you want to find people who claim Christ who live poorly and look at them and say see that's why I hate Christians and Christianity it won't be hard you'll find them it might be me that you find sometimes you catch me on a bad day sometimes even a good day and say I don't want to be anything like that but I would also encourage you if you take your time Invest in the church, read the scriptures, walk in the light for a while, and get to know some true Christians. If you have eyes to see it, you will see that they are the best people in the world. If you've spent long enough here, you have a lot of beacons around you of people who have walked faithfully through difficult circumstances. Difficult relationships. Who've watched family betray them and reject them, who've lived through death, lived through their own mistakes, and yet quietly, faithfully, humbly love others and serve others in ways you'd never see if you weren't paying attention. I want to go back to the original question of what has been your experience of Christians? My experience of Christians has been they're messed up like everybody else, but by God's supernatural grace, they're the best people you're going to meet in the world, not because of their goodness, but because of what Christ does. And Christians are the ones who will admit they're messed up, and they're hypocrites. Don't ever let anybody tell you that Christians have the sole claim on hypocrite or hypocrisy or judgmentalism. All you have to do is watch the news for a few minutes and see this world is full of hypocrites. Watch the political parties fight it out and spend so much time and energy Condemning the other side for all their evil actions, and then in the next news cycle, do all the same things themselves and justify it. Hypocrisy is a universal attribute of people. We as Christians own up to it and say we need grace. And we have the only source of hope and forgiveness in Jesus Christ because he's the only one who was not a hypocrite and who lived a perfect life and died for others and took our sin and paid for it and washed us clean and sanctified us. We have the only source of hope because we look outside of ourselves to another person to save us. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, not in us. Though we may be hypocrites, we're saved by Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Our Father and God, we thank you for uh, your grace and this good news. And the good news is not that we can get better if we really try. The good news is that there was one who perfect, who was perfect in our place. And we can trust in Him. Lord, we, we pray several things. One, that we would truly walk in the light, that you have called us to live a life that is representative of Jesus Christ. And we want to do that. And we know that by your grace we will do that. And we ask you for help in this, knowing we cannot do it on our own. Uh, We pray, Lord, that we would be a church that in one sense, is not full of hypocrites, but that we truly walk as holy people, as we are called to do and commanded to do and enabled to do by your Son, Jesus Christ, and your Spirit. So help us there, Lord, that we would be truly holy and faithful. And at the same time, that we would hold the tension that while we walk in the light, we will stumble and fall, and that we can confess our sins and know that we need a Savior in Jesus Christ, Lord. And may we walk with that kind of conviction, uh, that kind of fervor and righteousness and humility, In this world, to not call evil good or good evil, to walk righteously, and to know all along that we are only saved by the grace of God, and to extend the invitation out to any who will accept that they too can be saved from their own sin and their own hypocrisy. We thank you for the Savior and the salvation we have in your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.